I'm going to be speaking in Ephesians chapter 3 this evening, which happens to be Paul's second prayer for the church at Ephesus. Our sermon tonight, I'm going to be talking about how great is God's love. And um, for many years, both as a teacher and a preacher, I've tried to uh, encourage people to walk with the Lord, sort of to motivate them maybe out of the whole thing of duty, of discipline. And one of my favorite uh, cliches, I guess, not it's more than that, is a statement, is what Jesus used when he was in Matthew chapter 16 talking to his disciples. And he said, if anyone would come after me, he must do three simple things. He must deny himself, he must take up his cross, and he must follow me. And those are not suggestions, those are commands. And as I was uh, going through my earlier Christian experience, I really felt that that was important because Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And to be obedient to the will of God is, is absolutely uttermost. And sometimes, though, as pastors, a lot of times, they will kind of, and I, I was just from a church we had many years, where every sermon, without exception, was basically telling us we needed to be a witness to our families, to our friends, and to our co-workers. I don't think a Sunday went by that I wasn't challenged to do that. And I do believe that we all feel that we should be doing that. It's just something that God tells us we should be, or in the, in the book of Acts, we should be witnesses unto the ends of the earth. And yet, year after year after year, people sit there and hear that message, and nothing really happens in their heart. They know they should do it, but they don't have that inner motivation to go out and do it. And as I was looking through this sermon, uh, this whole passage, which we're going to look through here in a second, I came to the realization that what is the motivation to serve God? Is it fear of the great judgment that's going to come back? And if we don't go out and do all these works, uh, God's going to spank us and we're going to be sent to the, the woodshed. Or is there a higher motivation? And uh, again, as I, as I looked at this, it's, it's like the whole thing, why do we serve anyone? Why do we want to get involved in anything? And ultimately, it came down to the whole reality to me, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Okay? If we're going to have any kind of relationship in this world, whether it's a marriage, whether it's a, I don't know, at work, if it's only duty, it's a pretty dry, it's a pretty uh, oppressive environment. But if, if we have love towards God and understand the depth of his love for us, then we have an inner motivation that's very natural. We want to serve God. We want to testify to him because of all that he has done for us. And so as we go through this prayer tonight, I think it's going to become a revelation. I really pray that that it wouldn't just be a factual, I got some more information, I can take notes on this. And as we get through this, we're going to see that Paul really wants us to have a knowledge that's beyond knowledge. And we want to be filled up ultimately with the fullness of the stature of Christ. And that's a pretty high bar. So, and I can't, I can't say as I'm teaching this lesson tonight that I have attained all this. Even Paul in Philippians chapter 3 says, I, I have not yet attained, but I press towards the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And he, he wrote that about 33 years after he was a believer. So if he hadn't, he hadn't accomplished all that through his lifetime, I, can, uh, I can't even begin to tell you that I've accomplished all that. But anyway, we're going to start reading in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to the end of the chapter. 
For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ which passes or surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up with all the fullness of God. Now there's some pretty powerful things here. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. So that's the, uh, that's the text. And again, once we experience the love of Christ, all of a sudden, we're not serving God out of any kind of compulsion or any duty or anything like that. And we don't have to be scolded and beaten time after time after time to go out and serve God and to be a witness. And uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones made a comment. I thought it was really a great one because he makes a lot of them. And I'm going to quote him several times tonight, so I hope you don't get bored with this. But he says, The secret of the early Christians, the early Protestants, Puritans, and Methodists was that they were taught about the love of Christ and they became filled with the knowledge of it. Once a man has a love of Christ in his heart, you need not train him to witness. He will do it. The man who knows the love of Christ in his heart can do more in one hour than the busy type of man can do in a century. Wow, that's quite a statement. You can do more with the love of Christ in your heart in one hour than a busy guy doing his energy and his own strength can do in a century. Well, is there any biblical support for that statement? Jesus says, if you abide in me and I abide in you, you can ask what you will and it will be done. But he says, apart from me, you can do how much? You can do nothing, okay? So we're, if we're operating in the flesh with all the energy and all the zeal that we can muster, but we don't have the love of Christ and we don't have the Spirit of God in our hearts, it's just a lot of waste of time. So I thought that was pretty important, okay? Paul expresses the idea very clearly in 2 Corinthians 4, 15, and 16. He says, For Christ's love compels us because we're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and was raised again. So what we're going to focus on tonight is the love of God. And hopefully in the process, we're going to change into the fullness of the stature of Christ. Can you believe that can happen in one night? All right. From elementary theologians to the fullness of the stature of Christ. Okay. We're probably sitting about this level Christ is way beyond the ceiling, but we're going to try to measure up to him tonight before we get done, at least in partial understanding, okay? So just a brief background to this book. Uh, the Apostle Paul went to Ephesus on his third missionary journey. He spent three years in Ephesus, which was the longest period of time he spent at any one church. And this letter was written several years later. In fact, some people think it was kind of a letter that was sent to many churches, not just Ephesus, because some of the original manuscripts, it just doesn't even say where it's addressed to. It probably went to Laodicea and, and other churches as well. But while, when he wrote this, he was in prison in Rome. And so he wants to write to this church, and, and, and when you first start reading it, it doesn't sound like he even knows who's there. And so basically, it was years later, probably the church had grown very much while he was gone, um, Timothy actually spent some time there at Ephesus 
And, uh, but anyway, he begins to talk about God's sovereign purpose for the church. And so in the first chapter, he talks about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all their part in, in the church. And uh, he talks about having a spirit of revelation and the knowledge of God. We would know the hope of his calling, the riches of his inheritance in the saints, and the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe. Then he gets into chapter 2 and he talks about we were dead in trespasses of sins, but now we're raised into heavenly places at the right hand of God, and that we are not saved by works, but by grace through faith in Christ alone, and uh, all that sort of thing. And then he talks about the greatness of the church, that now Christ not only is ministering to the Jews like he did in the Old Testament, but he's combined both the Jews and the Gentiles into one body and uh, poured his spirit into them, and now we are uni united in Christ as one body. So now we're getting into this prayer itself. And first prayer, his first prayer was in chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. And the one that we just read is in chapter 3, 14 to 21. And again, uh, my, one of my mentors, Mr. Lloyd-Jones, says, It, Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter 3, 14 to 21, is undoubtedly one of the great mountain peaks in the scripture. Indeed, there are many who would say this is the highest peak of all, in the entire glorious range of scripture truth and divine revelation. Now that's a pretty big statement there in itself. And I might just mention too that Martin Lloyd-Jones preached 17 sermons on just this particular passage. Of course he also wrote eight, or preached eight volumes on the book of Ephesians and I, I had time years ago to read those. I don't have that much time anymore but uh, God really used that man. He was a preacher at Westminster Chapel in London, England and uh, probably the greatest Bible expositor in the 20th century. That's just my opinion, but anyway. Okay, so in this whole passage, there are four main ideas expressed in the prayer, all introduced by the word that. Number one, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. That's in verse 16. Number two, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That's in verse 17a. Number three, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. That's 17b to 19b. And then number four, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God, which is verse 19b. So this prayer gives us a graphic illustration how we as individuals and the corporate body of Christ might enter into the process of growing into full spiritual maturity that we might be filled up into all the fullness of God. So we're about ready to start on a grand expedition. How many are willing to go with me on this expedition? And I got a few hesitant hands, okay. But most of you are willing to come along on the ride. Okay, so how do we begin this whole process? God wants us to mature to the fullness of the stature of Christ, so at some point we have to begin. So if you're gonna begin in the physical life, how do we begin this life? This is an open question. I'm teaching now as well as preaching. It starts at a moment of what? Birth. We don't come into this world till we're born. Okay, so how do we begin our spiritual process? You must be born again, okay? So spiritual growth begins the moment we're born again or born from above. That word can be translated both ways, at which time Christ becomes our Savior and Lord, and the Holy Spirit takes up a permanent residence in our hearts. It says there in 3.16 that he would grant you according to riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man. So as we surrender our will to God as living sacrifices, God begins a work of regeneration. 
old habits, all the things that we have done in our past, a lot of our attitudes, whatever we were involved in, begins to pass away. It's gone. And all things start becoming new. That's called regeneration. Now, if nothing ever happened in your life from the moment you accepted Christ into your heart, that's our statement, everything's pretty much the same, boring, busy, frustrating, agonizing, no power, no joy, no peace, maybe somewhere along the line we missed the boat on what this whole process is about. Because according to 2 Corinthians 5.17, therefore, and I'm reading this from the Amplified, if any person is engrafted into Christ, he is a new creature altogether, a new creation. The old previous moral and spiritual condition has passed away. Behold, the fresh and new has come. And so a metamorphosis has transpired. Just like the caterpillar becomes a butterfly, the tadpole becomes a frog, bullfrogs and butterflies, they've both been born again. All right? There used to be a song about that. And so in Christ, we are new creations. We are, the old has passed, the new has come, and that's the way it's supposed to be. However, sometimes we go into dry spells, and we'll talk about that in a minute. So... Okay, the Holy Spirit or spiritual growth continues when Christ becomes not only the permanent uh, resident, but he also wants to become the welcome residence in our hearts. And 317 says that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love. Now, oftentimes people come to Christ out of desperation. Maybe they have lost their job and they're financially broke. Okay, I've been through that several times in my life. Maybe they've gone through a divorce. And that can be, to me, that's the most devastating thing that ever happened in my life. Maybe you've lost a loved one. Maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's a child, maybe it's a parent, maybe it's a sibling. And so these things became, become kind of empty out your self-sufficiency, kind of erodes your foundation. And when you come to the end of yourself, all the things that you were putting all your faith in, all your trust in has been demolished and you're looking at life and saying, man, how do I go on? And of course, for a lot of people, it becomes a dangerous thing. They go into drugs and alcohol and crime and all that, and eventually they end up in a bad place. But for Christians, sometimes people say, okay, if there's a God, God, come out and rescue me, save me. And they're kind of like when Peter was walking out in the water, and he said, Lord, if you're out there, Command me to come out and walk to you. So he starts to come out on the water, and the next thing he sees the wind and the waves, and he gets fearful, and down he goes. He says, oh, Lord, save me. And they owe Baptist confession, save me, Lord. And God reaches down, he pulls him up out of the storm, puts him in the boat, everything quiets down. And sometimes that's how our salvation is. We get out of the storm, God saves us, but then we get to the other shore and everything's calm, and he says, well, whew. Man, I'm, I'm glad God got me through that. But, you know, now I, I'm okay. I'm good. I, I can handle the rest of this by myself. And so then people start going back into their old habits, their old ways of life, self-sufficiency. They maybe go to church on Sunday, throw a few bucks in the offering plate. And if they really get desperate, they might even read a chapter of Scripture before they go to bed at night. But ultimately, they're back into the flesh. And so as a result, they get desperate. And life's not going well. Well, the Holy Spirit's grieved. He's quenched. And there is no life. There's no joy. There's no peace. And so ultimately, God says, you know, why don't you just stop a minute and take a look at the circumstances? What I really want is to 
dwell with you. I want to have supper with you. I want to dine with you. And so God says, I want to dwell in your hearts by faith. And again, in, in uh, the book of Revelation chapter 320, 320 says, uh, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in with him and dine with him and he with me. And so God wants us to be in such a relationship with him that he is our very best friend. And even beyond that, I think God wants our relationship with him to be sort of like when you're in the dating stage, the engaged stage, the honeymoon stage. It's been a few years ago, but I can still remember some of that. <laughs> I remember when I was uh, first, I first had met Abby really to uh, get to know her a little bit better. And I hope I'm not going to embarrass her doing this, but um, I was working up in uh, Breezewood, Pennsylvania in a place called Room in the Inn. And I would go up there on Sunday nights and I'd stay till Friday and come home on the weekends. And that's pretty much what I did for a whole year or so. But then when I met Abby, it's like, man, I can't wait till Friday. I want to get home. I want to spend some time with her. And then one time I took a, uh, took a 10 day uh, mission trip to Guatemala and I was ministering and having a lot of activities there but every night and every time I had a spare minute I thought man I want to be home I want to be with Abby and I want to share time with her and you know I think that's kind of the picture that God wants our relationship with him it's not just when a crisis hits when some big event comes and oh God now I need you he wants a relationship with us all the time and it should be a, it should be a sweet relationship and so again that's just uh, what God would like for our lives, not just to be, Lord, I, I need you now. It's always need, I need, I need, I need. But God, I love you because of who you are. You're my heavenly father and because of what you've done for me. So when Christ becomes the friend who's closer than our brothers or sister and we really have communication with him, then we begin to become rooted and grounded in love. So part of it is, again, I think is understanding the character of God. Um, years ago, I was teaching a gospel, a, a life group in the Gospel of John. How many years? About three years ago was that? I can't remember exactly. Somewhere in that area. And as I was reading through that gospel, and I saw how Jesus ministered to people. Everybody he deals with individually, but Nicodemus was one way. The woman at the well he dealt with differently. But I realized that Jesus Christ had come into the world to seek and to save that which was lost. And so as I was uh, reading through the gospel, and I was reading the other gospels as well as when I was going through John, I realized that Christ did not have any agenda of his own, only to do the will of his Father. And so I saw how Jesus not only loved the prostitutes and sinners, but even the people that hung him up on the cross, he even loved them. He says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And so early on in that study, at the end of every chapter, it had questions and then about, okay, how would you like this to affect my life? And so I began to pray. I said, God, I would like you to begin to soften my heart. Give me the kind of compassion that you had for lost people. And I was praying that on a, on a regular basis. And I, I actually made copies of this. I'm not going to share it all because I don't have time tonight. But as I went through that study, I was praying that God would open doors of opportunity to share the gospel. Well, at the last, I, I did copy the last page of the study. And the question is, look back over the entire study of questions at which you expressed a desire to make some application. 
Are you satisfied with your follow-through? Ask God to show you any areas in which you should continue to pursue growth. growth write anything you decide here. And here's, here's what I wrote down that night or that day. After a number of lessons, I asked God to create in me a greater heart of compassion for the lost and that he would open up doors of opportunity for me to share the gospel with the lost. Over the past two months, God has opened up the doors of the county jail to witness to men in the blocks. And I have been blessed to see God bring men to speak with and share God's word with. Last week was the best week so far, and I look forward to fruitful ministry in the weeks and months ahead. Now, that's just a small example, and I have just a very small taste of the love of God for lost people. I mean, but you, but you know, before that study and before I began to pray, I never had any, I taught the uh, adult education classes there for seven years, seven and a half years. It never even dawned on me, hey, there's a whole bunch of people here who are lost going to hell, and I'm just teaching academic stuff, and I see them recycle in and out and in and out and in and out, and nobody's making progress. I'm thinking, wow, what's, what's the whole point of this? And finally, God opened that door, and I've been walking through it every, ever since. And there's a young fellow right there that God touched his heart. Now, I'm not, giving, I'm not taking the credit for this. God did the sovereign work, okay? But I got to be a part of it. I got to see what God was doing. And so, but again, as, if we open up our hearts and say, God, I want to have more of your love for lost people, I can't do this. I don't, man, years ago, I thought they made a bunch of stupid mistakes. Let them sit there. Let them rot. You know, that's... That's the flesh, you know. Why would I want to care about these people? They, what have they done for me? But God came. He, he had so much compassion that he came to seek and not just seek them, but to save the lost. And so, you know, I hope that God continues to expand my own heart because if God doesn't do the work, I can't do a thing. He, but he can do tremendous things. All right, just uh, share a couple verses here to really show God's love. And I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time with this. But Psalm 103, 1 through 5 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies your life with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle's. And then verses 11 to 13, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his mercy towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As the Father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. So if you just meditate on that, there's quite a bit. Uh, everybody knows John 3:16. ever since I was a little kid in Sunday school, and I think most of you have learned it. For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And so a lot of us have memorized that, and just, it's like, oh well, yeah, God loved us, he died for us. But again, do we really sit, do we meditate on the depth of God's love? And uh, we'll be looking at another passage that deals with that subject a little bit later. Uh, another passage that really does expand, expand upon God's love is Romans 5, 5 through 11. It says, and hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he's given us. You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? 
For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Now, I just want to point out a few things. God did not wait until we got all of our ducks lined up perfectly before he started to reach into our hearts. Three main words, while we were powerless, while we were still sinners, while we were enemies, Christ died for us. In a, that desperate lost state, Christ died for us. Some people would die for a righteous man or a good man. People give their lives for their buddies in, 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 arm, in the army during wartime. That happens. But very seldom would a person die for the enemy. That's not likely to happen. But Christ died for us while we were estranged from him. We were not reconcilable. And he died that he might, we might have life in him. So the more time that we spend in Christ, with Christ reading this word, not just reading and say, well, I read my chapter for the day. Now I can get back to what I'm doing. But actually let this word get into our hearts and into our minds and change us ultimately into the image of Christ and then to have time with him in prayer and then time in fellowship with one another, sharing his word with lost people. All those things, we begin to get rooted and grounded in God's love. Again, if we love him, we will keep his commandments. If we don't obey God's commandments, what does he say? You don't, you're not really loving me. It's a lot of just idle words. So love becomes the foundation and stability of our lives. Just as roots give strength and security to a tree and deep footers give stability to strengthen a building, so does God's love give us strength and stability through all the ups and downs of life. So when things are going well in our lives, we should be praising him, we should be worshiping him, we should be thanking him, we should have an attitude of great gratitude. And if things are going bad, just remember, God is our rock, he is our fortress, He's our high tower, he's our deliverer, he's our shield, he's our defender, all the things that David talks about in the Psalms. And also the promise, he says, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. And he's a, he's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. My brothers are all miles away. I've got my, my closest brother, my oldest, he's in Oregon, I'm here in Maryland, probably 3,000 miles away. But in the spirit, we're one, okay? And so no matter how far God may be in heaven, he is right in our hearts, and so he is rooting us. He's grounding us in love. All right, so now we come to verses 18 and 19, where we find the spirit, that spiritual growth reaches its climax, and we grow up into all the fullness of God. And again, we're looking at Ephesians 3, 18 and 19, that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. So Paul is encouraging us to grow up into all the fullness of God. Sounds like a pretty easy assignment, doesn't it? No, no sweat, no problem. So what is the key to growing up into the spiritual uh, fullness of God? Well, Paul gives us uh, the key uh, in verse 18. The first one, the first, there's, there's three, actually three steps. The first step is found in 18, that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height of God's love. So just to define the word comprehend, it means to take hold of so as to grasp tightly and not let go. To take possession of, to understand or comprehend fully. And what are we to fully comprehend? Well, here it is. 
We are to comprehend all the fullness of the dimensions of God's love, what is the breadth and length and height and depth. And how do we do that? Well, we've got to get out our in infinity ruler to measure the dimensions of God's love. We have all kinds of rulers, but th this is infinite, so we have to get our infinity ruler. And this reminds me of a song that I used to hear on, on uh, Billy Graham's Evangelistic Crusades. The George Beverly Shea used to sing this. And it was called The Love of God. And I'm just trying to pull from my memory. I may not have this exact, but it's, it's pretty close anyway. He says, The love of God is greater far than all the tongues of man can tell. It flows beyond the highest mount and reaches to the lowest hell. Could we with ink the ocean fill and were the sky a parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade? To spread the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though spread from sky to sky. O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong. It shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. So that kind of paints a grand panorama of just how great God's love is, how vast and how deep and how wide. Uh, John Stott makes a little comment I thought it was worthy of quoting. He says, the love of God is broad enough to encompass all mankind, especially Jews and Gentiles, the theme of these chapters. Long enough to last for eternity, deep enough to reach the most degraded center, and high enough to exalt him to heaven. And uh, I believe one of the, the greatest passages that explain the depths and all those dimensions of God's love uh, in which he used to redeem creation is in Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Since we've been through Philippians here recently, I think, but I'm going to read from the Amplified New Testament. He says, Let this attitude and purpose and humble mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. Let him be your example in humility, who, although essence, being essentially one with God and in the form of God, possessing the fullness of the attributes which makes God God, did not think equality with God a thing to be eagerly grasped or retained. But he stripped himself of all privileges and rightful dignity so as to assume the guise of a servant or slave, in that he became like men and was born a human being. After that, he had appeared in human form. After he had appeared in human form, he abased and humbled himself still further and carried his obedience to the extreme of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, because he stooped so low, God has highly exalted him and has freely bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee must bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue frankly and openly confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Jesus left all the glories of heaven. The angels bowed down and worshipped him. He came as a baby in a manger. This really fits in with the Christmas theme, doesn't it? He came in human flesh, born in a manger. You can't get any poorer than that. Okay, he dwelt among average men, fishermen, shepherds, just everyday common blue-collar workers. And he was totally obedient to the will of his father. He never inherited the American dream, never, never gone, uh, had a house, never had a boat, never had any prosperity, only the shirt on his back. And ultimately, he came and died that you and I, us wretched individuals, could have eternal life. That's the dimension of God's love. I don't think all of us, if, if God says, I want you to save the rats. I want you to strip yourself of all your human privileges. I want you to take on the fur and the long tail. And I want you to go along among the rats and minister to the rats. Uh, that would be rather disgusting, wouldn't it? But I think God 
basically came down on a lower scale than from us to a rat, from heaven down to us as humans. And then he came on his own, his own received him not, not the son of God. So that is, again, explaining the depths of his love. Another passage I think really explains it is Romans 8. And now we, I taught about that a couple months ago, but I don't think it will hurt you to go through that quickly right one more time. And verse 8, 28, I'm going to go from there. He says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. Those who love God, those called according to his purpose. And how do we know that? Here it is. Because for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? This is a rhetorical question. Can anybody be against us if God is for us? Who's greater than God? Nobody can be. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who does the justifying. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who can do this? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it's written, for your sakes we're killed all day long. We're accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, and Paul experienced most of this, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For he says, I'm persuaded, and I'm adding this extra, and convinced beyond any doubt that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from what? The love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So God's love is adequate for any trials, any tribulations, any things that can come into our life. God's love is more than adequate to meet us in those hours of greatest need. And if you haven't gone through any trials in your own life, I'll tell you from my own experience, they're not easy to go through sometimes. But if you know that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, you have eternal life in him, one day you're going to be with him in heaven, that gives you hope that the world never can understand. I know that my Redeemer liveth, and I'm going to see him in the latter days. And that's, I can take that to the bank. So how powerful is this? Nothing, absolutely nothing can ever separate us from the love of God. And this is what God wants us to grasp a hold of and never let go. As I said before, you can take it to the bank, you can put it in the safe, because heaven and earth may pass away, but God's words will never pass away. It's absolutely secure. So we've just looked at a very lofty concept. And some would say, well, that's, pretty, uh, that's a pretty lofty concept. For super saints, okay, if you're one of the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, well, that applies to you. But little old me, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. I don't know that that works in my behalf because I just, I sit on a lower level. I'm, I'm not one of the clergy, I'm just one of the laity. It's kind of like the Catholic Church, you know, you got the super saints and you got the people down here. Well, that's not what the apostle Paul taught. He says that we might be able to comprehend with some of the saints. No, it isn't. He said, with all the saints, and all means what? All. all means all, and that's all that all means. And don't forget that. That's all that all means. It is exactly what it says. So, brothers and sisters, we are all included in this great quest. Now, 
probably none of us have been called to be apostles, prophets, and that sort of thing. But all, God has called all of us to be a part of his kingdom. We are all saints. We're all part of the citizens of his kingdom. And so we are all to experience the joy, the love of God, and to be used in, in powerful ways for his kingdom. So that's the first step. Now the second step is, which is a little bit more profound even than the first, is that we might know the love that surpasses knowledge. Now how do you learn something that's beyond knowledge? How do you get that? It's pretty tough, isn't it? Well, the, the Christian experience is more, and I have to say this from my experience, it's more than going to Bible college or seminary. And there we learn to uh, explore the unexplainable, how to unscrew the inscrutable, and to learn into these deep and vast theological concepts. Some of the words I can't even remember anymore. They were, you know, hyper-Calvinism hyper and all that, but that was, that was one of the smaller words. But anyway, it's, I enjoyed that. I, it's a really a mental challenge to go to school and learn a lot of these theological terms, and some of them really have some validity. But what Paul's talking about is something that goes beyond that. It goes into the heart of our circumstances when life gets down just plain dirty and tough. And so Paul went through beatings and imprisonments and stonings and shipwrecks and hunger and fastings and nakedness and all this stuff. And uh, all, through all that stuff, he says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 7, he says, But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost, the, lost basically everything. Suffered the loss of all things. I consider them rubbish that I might gain Christ. And here, here's his desire. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, being conformed unto his death. So Paul had suffered all these things. But you know what? You read Philippians, you read all his other letters, and he didn't sit around having a pity party of uh, woe is me and uh, boy, God isn't fair. Why, do, why does everything happen to me? You know, nobody knows the troubles I've seen. But he basically told other people, you know, you can rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. And so he just, he wanted to embrace Christ totally in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. I want that resurrection power. I've always wanted that. The fellowship of his sufferings, not so much. That's not so much fun. But that's, that's the passion that Paul had. And I think that's the passion that God wants us all still to have. So anyway... God's love had really captivated Paul. And if you really go, ever go through a tough time, just read Paul's letters. Read 2 Corinthians, read Philippians, read all his letters. And, and Romans chapter 8, they will really help you in those difficult times. Because Paul, he literally took up his cross and followed Jesus. He denied himself. And one of my favorite verses too is Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I that live. It's Christ that lives in me. And the life that I now live in this fleshly body, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So, finally we're coming down to the conclusion. And the climax of the passage is in the second half of verse 19. The climax is reached and we become filled up to all the measure of the fullness of God. And this is the part that really gets exciting. If, if not knowing God beyond the, the surpassing knowledge, if that doesn't get you, this one surely will. Um, the Amplified New Testament writes it this way, that you may be filled up, filled through all your being under the fullness of God. That is, you may have the richest measure of the divine presence and become a body wholly filled and flooded with God himself. All right, and we're going to try to 
bring a little bit more to this. And again, Martin Lloyd-Jones says, The fullness of God therefore can reside in me in exactly the same way as the fullness of the life of the vine is in every individual branch and twig. The fullness of the vine, the essence, the life, that element in the sap that makes the vine the vine is in the branches also. As the fullness of the vine is in the branches because of the organic connection, the vital union of all its parts, if Christ is in me, then all the fullness of God has, is in me in the sense of that quality of life is in me. In other words, the very life of Christ is flowing through me. So if we are filled with the Spirit of God, then we should be demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit. And some of you probably know those fruits. They says the fruit of the Spirit is love, which again, we're talking about the love of God. That's the, the top one. And that kind of goes down through the rest. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control. And so... If we're going to be filled up with the fullness of God, then we need to have the Holy Spirit indwelling us and filling us with all the fruit. And if there's none of the fruit, we don't have any love, we don't have any joy, we don't have any peace, we have no long-suffering, we have no patience, we have no goodness, we have no kindness, then possibly the Holy Spirit took a vacation. Maybe he's quenched, maybe he's grieved, maybe he's not even there. So, at the end of Paul's first prayer in Ephesians, I'm going to have to wrap this up pretty quick here, it looks like. Um, Ephesians 1, and 23, it says, And he, God, has put all things under his, Christ's feet, and has appointed him the universal and supreme head of the church, a headship exercised throughout the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. For in that body lives the full measure of him who makes everything complete and who fills everything everywhere with himself. So again, we're looking at the corporate body of Christ. Christ fills us, and together, as a corporate body, we represent the fullness of stature of Christ. Again, he says the same, a very similar thing in chapter 4, verses 13 and 15, through 15. Until we all come to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. So again, that's basically what the fivefold ministry of the church was to edify the saints to build them up until they the corporate body of Christ measures up to the fullness of the stature of Christ and one more text dealing with this subject Colossians 2 9 and 10 for in him the whole fullness of deity the Godhead continues to dwell in bodily form giving complete expression of the divine nature and you are in him made full and have come to the fullness of life in Christ, you too are filled with the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and reach full spiritual stature. Now, we might just have to sit down for a minute and think about that. He says, you're filled with the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Think that's a little exaggeration? Jesus said, I'm going, I'm going to go away from you, but I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, who will live and abide with you forever. Okay? Also, he said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. How can he be with us if he's sitting at the right hand of God in heaven? And what, what about God the Father? How, is, how does he fit into this whole mix? Well, John chapter 14, verse 23 says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we, Father and Son, will come to him and make our abode with him. Okay? And if that doesn't grab you, John chapter 17, 20 and 21 says, Jesus is praying in the garden. 
He says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, the twelve, but for those also who will believe in me through them, or through their word, that they all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. So Jesus says, I want them to be one with us. Even as Father and Son are together, I want them to be in the same fellowship, the same communion in the Trinity that we have. Now that's pretty, that's pretty high theology. I don't know that most of us even think about that kind of stuff. But that's, that's the level that God wants us to begin to grow into, the fullness of the stature of Christ. That the Holy Spirit would just fill us up and you know what? If we're filled with the Holy Spirit, just like this cup, if it's filled with water, you can't pour anything else into it, can you? If we are filled with the Holy Spirit, the flesh really doesn't have any place to operate. The problem is, we, we push the Holy Spirit aside, we say no to God, and we quench the Spirit, and we start feeding our flesh, and the next thing, we got muddy water. And so we can't receive the power of God because we're a mixed multitude. We just have a lot of, of garbage in our lives. So God wants us to be, grow up into full spiritual maturity until we attain to all the full measure of perfection that is found in Christ. All right, but what does this mean in practice? Again, I'm going to listen to Dr. Lloyd-Jones. He said, first of all, it means that God dwells in us in such a way as to control, all, control us and all our faculties. Indeed, God controls the whole of our life. He controls our thinking, our feelings, and our outward actions. Man must be thought ever in terms of his mind, his heart, and his will. If we're filled with all the fullness of God, it means that God is controlling us in the mind, in the heart, which is the feelings and sensibilities, and in the realm of the will, the outward actions and all our activities. In other words, Jesus Christ becomes the absolute Lord and Master of our life. A lot of us want Jesus as our Savior. Save me from sins. Get me to heaven. Get me that get-out-of-jail-free card. I, want, I don't want to go to hell, so save me, and I want to live by grace alone. No works involved, just grace. I want your grace, 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 love, love, joy, peace, happiness, joy, joy all the time. Well, Jesus said again, if you're going to come after me, that all is part of it, but I also want you to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. So is this really possible, or are we just talking about a pipe dream that's uh, good for some super spiritual mystic that's hiding out in a, in a cave somewhere or in a, in a monastery? Well, the answer to that question is given in verses 21 and 20 and 21, and this really tells you that you don't have an excuse, which I'm talking about myself too. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or even imagine, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. So if this whole thing was left up to us, to you and me, to work this out in our own abilities, we might as well forget it. We can't do it. It's impossible. But God has not left us alone. He's empowered us with his indwelling Holy Spirit so that we can do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we could ask, think, or even imagine. According to the power that worked within us, which is the power of the Holy Spirit. So, God can take all of our weaknesses, all our past failures, and transform them into something good and beautiful. He, uh, he can take Humpty Dumpty and put him back together again. All the king's horses, all the king's men couldn't put Humpty Dumpty back together again, but God can. And so, he, he ultimately is the potter, we are the clay, 
we can be a muddy mess, but if we are in the hands of God, he can form us, he can shape us, and ultimately his grandest purpose, he's going to conform us to the very image of Christ. That's his goal. We're Christians. We're little Christ. He wants us to be conformed to his likeness, his image, his character, and he's the God of love. And I got a lot of work yet to go on that. I, if I could live as old as Methuselah, I think I could start to get a grasp on that. But I, God has still got me in elementary school. But I, I see what God has for us, what, he, what the expectation is. So I can make a lot of excuses, but ultimately God says, you don't have any excuses. I've given you the Holy Spirit, and I've given you my example, so now you can walk in my steps. All right, 2 Corinthians 9, or 12, 9 and 10, Paul writes, And he, the Lord, has said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses, that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulty for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Man, that's the testimony of my life. I'm one of the weakest people that I know. I mean, I'm the youngest of six. I was the runt, and I just had older brothers that picked on me a lot, and I just didn't feel very adequate. And I, to tell, on top of all that, speech was the class I hated the most in high school and college, and I still don't like getting up in front of here. But I just know that if God calls me to do this, I need to do it. It's imperfect, it's inadequate that I know I am. If God calls me to do something for him, I've just got to step out in faith, get out of my comfort zone, as brother over here tells us all the time. <laughs> brother Ramudi, he's, God got him out of his comfort zone a few times. And that's what God continues to do. He gets us out of the place where we, I'd rather have Luke up here every, Sunday, every time and preach. I love sitting back there and listening to him. But um, I'm just a substitute teacher tonight, and I'm doing the best that I can. So one final word. Again, I would like to quote Romans 8.28. And again, it says that we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. But those are the conditions that are necessary to have a mature spiritual Christian life. You've got to know, you've got to love God and you've got to be called according to his purpose.